This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation, a family-led foundation that tackles tough social and environmental problems with urgency and a long-term approach to create access to opportunity for people and communities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelis Hernandez, a reporter at the Washington Post. Today's program focuses on the water crisis in the United States, and my guests are Jonathan Nez, president of the Navajo Nation, and Emma Robbins, executive director of the Navajo Water Project. A warm welcome to you both this morning. Thank you, morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Emma, I wonder if we could start with you. Uh, as we just saw in that clip, the last time President Nez was on Washington Post Live, he said that 30 to 40 percent of Navajo people don't have running water. Growing up, your grandparents also didn't have running water, if that's correct. What, w- what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think like many people growing, on the, growing up on the res, that was the case. Um, You know, there was a huge difference because I grew up in the largest community on the Navajo Nation, which is Tuba City, Arizona. And just 30 miles away, my grandparents didn't have running water or the majority of my family. And not only that, there were many abandoned uranium mines, which affected the groundwater. So it was about making sure that our elders were okay. So taking portions of our time and making sure that they had drinking water that was safe. Um, and also hosting them in our house to make sure that they could do things like take showers or wash clothes. Um, but it really instilled in me the urgency and um, I guess just like a big part of my life to take care of our elders and our community members. Well, you mentioned some of those things, but what do people like your grandparents do when they don't have running water? Uh, you know, aside from relying on relatives, how do they bring water home? They'll haul water. So they have a pickup truck and they'll haul water in um, barrels or else they go to grocery stores and buy bottled water, which can be costly and not great for the environment, obviously. Um, And as President Nez, President, as he stated many times, will people will prioritize where they get their water from. And I guess you know, prioritize how the water is used. So some people have livestock and that's very important to them. So rather than using drinking water, they might use that water for their animals. In addition to that, people are getting water from livestock wells that are not considered potable or safe. Well, I wonder if we can talk solutions in a little while, but first I wanna give our audience a sense of awareness of, of the problem and the scope. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic exasperated water crises around the world. President Nez, how did water shortages fuel the spread of COVID in the Navajo Nation, which I understand at one point had some of the highest rates of, of spread in, in the country? Uh, good morning, and thank you for having on, us on the Washington Post once again. Uh, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of the uh, deficiencies in infrastructure came to light, including water and electricity. As as I mentioned, 30 to 40% of our Navajo people don't have running water and about the same percentage don't have electricity. 
you need electricity to pull water from one area to the next. And so there is a need to have both. And this is happening right in the midst of uh, this country as we rebuild other nations, worn torn nations, uh, indigenous people still live without this basic necessity, running water. And because of uh, no running water, you know, the uh, pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, showed that there was uh, no discrimination especially in communities of color and communities without water it just spread fast in within our community as as was mentioned uh we are a nation of people who uh believe in the rest of this world i'm sure are, are realizing water is life and when we bring water to our homes you know we are taught to give water to our animals uh, that sustain life. You know, we utilize the livestock for food, uh, also for the farms. Uh, we eat the fruits and vegetables that come uh, from the farms. And then we utilize it for drinking water and whatever is left over at that point, if any, is used for personal hygiene. So as you can see, the lack of water uh, perpetuated the spread of COVID-19 on the Navajo Nation. Um, but there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. We are looking at utilizing these infrastructure dollars to begin to uh, get water projects started and to get uh, clean drinking water into communities, and and the other thing that we 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 did we don't talk about much is also the contamination of our water from heavy metals, uh, uranium as well. You know, right now uh, we're fighting to get the just compensation for our Navajo mine workers through an update with the Radi Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Over 500 uranium mines are still uh, open here on the Navajo Nation that causes uh, contamination to our surface and our, our groundwater. And so the need is great in Indian country. And, and I know that uh, folks like Emma and, and other organizations are doing uh, a good job in helping our Navajo citizens through this public health emergency. I want to switch over really quick, Emma. Like you, with all of these problems, problems that President Nez is referring to, what impact does climate change have on the crisis in the Navajo Nation in with water? That's a great question. So you know, primarily, climate change affects the amount of water that we have. So we are seeing wells that are drying up, which means that people who are hauling water, which is a large percentage, aren't able to access these wells. On top of it, there are secondary things like when there's climate change, there can be more rain, there can be less rain or snow. And so this damages the roads that people rely on to go to different wells to haul water. And that's actually something that's really big that a lot of people don't think about. 
you know, there's lack of infrastructure when it comes to water or electricity or connectivity, but it's also the connectivity of roads that brings us together. And again, to our most precious resource, which is water. So sort of a, a cascade of problems. President Nez, I mean, how do you feel about President Biden's verbal commitments to addressing climate change because of the just the visceral impact that it has on your community? Right, and, and we're hopeful that the Build Back Better initiative will cross the finish line. You know, there are, there's a lot of debate happening in Washington, D.C. on the reconciliation and also the infrastructure bills and much of that support, financial support, is to you know help out with the climate change. Now, back to your question about how the Southwest is affected by climate change, including the Navajo Nation. You know, right now we have seen Lake Powell uh, water levels go down. That's a, a big um, uh, water <clears throat> water tank, if you want to call it that for California, Nevada, uh, as well as Southern Arizona. And now where the, the states are discussing, you know, limiting the water that is uh, being utilized in the Southwest from the Colorado River, the upper and the lower basin. But yet we're still, Navajo and other tribes are still wanting to get uh, a seat at the table to discuss how these allocations are going to be into the future. Uh, the Winters Doctrine uh, assists tribes to make sure that they should have a seat at the table, but to this day, the states determine uh, how much water is allocated from the waterways, and that includes Lake Powell. And so with the drought happening in the Southwest, uh, there water is gold now and we are navajo nation is wanting to you know talk about our water rights and, and one of the things that uh, always come up is well that this this amount whatever it is determined is for tribes or the navajo nation in terms of drinking water but as we said earlier it's not just about drinking water it's about well, water for our livestock water for our farms to sustain uh, our nation, to have a, um, a sustainable uh, communities within our nation in terms of uh, water development. And, you know, at this point in time, we also said we're not going to wait on water rights settlements. We are going to begin to build some of these water major water uh, pipelines on our nation and that's what we just we did recently with the um the appropriation of over 50 million dollars for the Navo, uh, western navajo pipeline which is putting uh getting some of that water in lake powell and getting it into the western part of the navajo nation but we are in discussions right now with many parties to uh, see how the, what the Navajo Nation will be getting in water allocations into the future. 
Well, talking about wells and the fact that they are, some of them are going dry, some of them are contaminated and cause people to get sick. Uh, many of those wells are for livestock, but people have to use them in some cases when they're desperate. So Emma, what kind of contaminants are polluting the water supplies and how are you working to give more people access to clean water? As President Nez mentioned, there are heavy metals. So uranium and arsenic, those are two very large causes of cancer. And that's a huge issue because it's not something that's only happened in the past decade. It's something that's been going on forever. I mean, since these mines existed, uranium and arsenic are naturally occurring. And so the answer to that is to clean up these mines and make sure that this isn't going to perpetuate. Um, what Dig Deep does and the Navajo Water Project is part of the human rights organization Dig Deep. So what we do is not only deliver water to homes that don't have running water from safe wells, we are also developing new sources. So that way we're no longer having people to travel long distances to go and access unsafe water sources, but one, bringing it to them, which is very important during the pandemic, but also empowering them to utilize these wells as well. Um, I do wanna mention one thing though, stepping back a little bit, that's really important because we are talking about getting things like water from these sources to allow people to have potable water, to have people um, to allow people to have water to do, you know, clean themselves, to clean dishes, whatever they need to do. But we also really need to highlight that it's important to have these sources because if people don't have this, it's affecting their mental health as well. It's not just a physical health issue. You know, if you're constantly thinking about where is my water coming from, you're not thriving, you're surviving. And it's this mentality that we need to move our people away from because when I hear Lake Powell, I think of tourists that come in who enjoy that water, who do things like boating. And that's something that oftentimes Navajo Nation citizens who lack running water aren't able to do. So it's not just about having metals in the water and not having drinking water or not having water for hygiene but also making sure that when people get the safe water, they're able to move away from that stress. And it's just something that I really wanna highlight because it is very important. Well, let's lean into that a second. Um, I mean, what are some of the manifestations that you've seen? Give me some examples of, of how the stress of not knowing or, or, or knowing or having to work to bring water to your home manifests in the everyday lives of people. You know, one of the most um, glaring examples is during COVID when Navajo Nation is told constantly, I mean, yes, we're a sovereign nation, but we are also U.S. citizens. When we hear from organizations like the CDC or the World Health Org, stay in your homes, don't leave. That's not an option for people if they can't turn on their tap or if they can't flush a toilet. You know, as we mentioned, they're traveling long distances, whether that's to access wells, safe or not, to get bottled water or to go to other families' homes. People are going from point A to point B, and there might be higher contaminations of COVID in point B, and they're bringing it home to multi-generational families. And that's an issue because there's the stress of, do I get running water? Or excuse me, do I get safe water? Do I expose myself? 
you know, the stress is there. We all want to take care of our bodies, of our families, and make sure that we don't get sick because obviously that can lead to things like death or spreading it to our elders. But it's just such a huge stress for people every day during the pandemic. And it continues to be that way. I think about family and friends and colleagues who had to travel off the reservation to get water. And states like Arizona or Utah had much higher cases of COVID. So we're going from a nation like the Navajo Nation that's battling COVID into other states and we're exposing ourselves. So that's one stress. I think about school-aged children that we see who are going to school with other kids who might have running water. And there's otherization there, right? Like I'm feeling very different from these children who are able to do things like bathe every day. And so it feels like you're very different and that's a different form of dehumanization as well, right? When you don't feel like everybody else, you don't feel that you deserve the same rights. And that's a really big problem that we need to get rid of. And that comes from getting people access to clean running water. Well, thank you. Thank you for spelling that out. I wonder if we, we might pivot then towards talking about solutions, which is what, what both of you have been working on. President Nez, you've, you've talked about you know some of the ways that you think you're going to be able to use that money in, in CARES Act and, and looking forward at the infrastructure bill. Um, but give me a, little, a few more specific examples of how you think you're going to use that money to give people clean running water. Well, let, let me just go back to the, the previous question. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this at our last uh, Washington Post uh, event that, uh, you know, I'm the president of the Navajo Nation growing up in a rural community, Chanto, Arizona. Believe it or not, my family where I live right now in Chanto do not have running water. And, and yet I'm the president of the Navajo Nation. Well, I, I was taught well, though. My parents would always say, you help others before you help uh, your own. And that's what we've been doing. But throughout this pandemic, my sister, my family members have been hauling water. 30, 30, 30 miles, so 60 miles round trip to get running water for, for the house and the animals. And almost daily. And Emma brought that up too, is that we're encouraging our Navajo system, so our, our Navajo people, to stay home throughout this pandemic. But yet we can't. We have to go almost every day and maybe every other day to bring water back to the home. And so you are more prone to catching the virus. And I thank God that my family at home uh, did not catch the virus. Now, of course, you got to have a hope. You got to have uh, a vision for the people. And that vision is to get our federal leaders to understand that indigenous peoples, some are still without basic infrastructure. And those of you that are listening, you know, I ask for your support. I know people will ask president, how can we help? Who can I write this check out to? No, we, we don't. What we want is for our people that are listening that if this uh, event and, and our presentation moves you to take action, 
call your senator, call your congressperson, and let them know that there is a big need within this country. And with the approval of the CARES Act, you know, we had to fight tooth and nail, as they say, to put in there into the CARES Act package $20 billion for Indian country. And it was, uh, the, it didn't have one penny in there for Indian country. But I appreciate our Congress, uh, uh, our, our congressional delegation for fighting for us and putting that. And we've helped uh, connect families or connect homes to the main water line, the trunk line, as they call it, where they uh, are connected to the homes. And we did many of that, but there was a timeline and there was a timeline in place. We couldn't uh, get all those projects done within the timeline. And, and, and our, our folks in, in Washington, D.C. don't understand that things uh, happen slower in Indian country because it is federal trust land. We're considered uh, the same as any federal lands throughout the country, national park lands, uh, Bureau of Land Management, uh, and other federal lands. And, and, and so when we want to uh, do some infrastructure projects, we have to go to the BIA to get a right away. We got to go to the EPA to get our environmental clearances. You know, all these federal agencies have to be a part of getting at least even one project uh, to move forward. And that is why the, uh, the deadline came pretty quick and we weren't able to do that. But now with the new allocation of the American Rescue Plan Act, we have a little bit more time. We're not just saying uh, to Congress, um, we need more funding. We're also asking Congress that some of these laws get updated. You know, it shouldn't take years to get a right away. It shouldn't get, take years to get a home site lease for uh, a person to build a home or to get water or electricity to their existing homes. Those need to be streamlined. But uh, with the monies that are coming in, much of those dollars will be for infrastructure. Like I said earlier too, you need electricity to pull water from one region to the next. And so electricity and water uh, is very important to get complete in these most rural parts of the Navajo Nation. We have uh, 27,000 square miles. We, have, we are the largest tribe, land-based tribe in the country. Um, and we have over 400,000 enrolled members. And there, there is uh, a lot of uh, homes uh, that are need repair too, but that's another subject. We're talking about water here and we are hopeful that these dollars uh, that get allocated will be used to give a shot in the arm to our Navajo economy. That's uh, also community and, and economic projects. Well, so we are running quickly out of time. I have time for just one more question. And I, I wanna talk about sort of, you know, again, on this issue of solutions, when you talk to young people, both, uh, this is a question for you, Emma, and President Nez, when you talk to young people, uh, how do you get them motivated to lead on these on these important issues? How do you get that next generation of activists to, to, to care and to get involved? Um, I'll start well, out, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think all of us, you know, I haven't met one person who doesn't care or who doesn't understand that this is an issue regardless of their age. I think it's about creating opportunities 
for younger folks or folks who you know aren't considered young i mean we're all young at heart um but i think what it is is creating opportunities for people to come back to our homelands and to do the work for their people because it's not so easy to just transplant yourself i'm currently on tongva land or in los angeles and i live part of the month on the res because that's where i work but if i didn't have that opportunity it'd be really difficult to join you know the fight to get clean water, whether it's with the Navajo Nation government, like President Nez and his team, or other nonprofits. So it's about creating opportunities for people to come back and also telling people or demonstrating and empowering, saying, you are a part of the solution. Like if we all step in, everybody has a place in this fight. It's not just one group of people who have power over another. It's us coming together and saying, we can make this happen. Right, and and you know I want to thank uh, thank you all for having us on the uh, live event today. And as you heard from Emma, we have some very passionate Navajo citizens, Navajo young people that are that have been helping out throughout this pandemic. I mean, we've all been told at one point or another, you go get your education and get that education, go experience off our nation, bring that experience back to our nation to help the people. And it's about nation building. And I believe that is what we're doing, Emma and myself and others in positions of uh, influence. And there are a lot of young people striving to get that experience, that education to come back and help, not just in water, but also help and build our nation. And the last thing I wanna say is that I'm hoping that um, viewers, listeners uh, realize that, yeah, we were number one in the country and maybe in the world of COVID positive daily cases per capita. But you know what, today you fast forward it and we are the most vaccinated people probably in the world. 70% of our, our, our residents, well, over 70% of our residents that live on the Navajo Nation fully vaccinated. Uh, and we have had some very low daily case counts. So from what we went through last year to today, I commend our Navajo people, uh, how they listened to the public health experts, how they honored their leaders, and how people like Emma and many organizations came out and even our young people helping uh, their elders and their community members out to uh, get through this pandemic. That should be a story of resilience and maybe even utilizing Navajo Nation as a model to push back on COVID-19. But I, I do commend our Navajo people for the outstanding work they have done throughout this public health emergency. And thank you. And we are out of time for this segment, but we, so we'll have to leave it there. But that was, thank you so much for, for bringing it back to the beginning of our conversation, President Nez. Thank you to you both, uh, President Jonathan Nez, Emma Robbins for joining us this morning. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'll be back here with Sarah Derringer of the Pisces Foundation in just a few minutes. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University. For years, climate change has been a, a large amorphous threat that's hard to get our heads around. But the reality of the problem is becoming ever more present in the lives of Americans, especially when it comes to one of the most basic ingredients in life, water. To talk about how climate change is affecting our water supply and what can be done to protect it, I'm joined by Mara McDonald, the director of the Environment Program at the Walton Family Foundation. Maura, great to have you. Thank you, it's great to be here. So we've often seen that the impact of climate change is hardest on frontline communities and tribal communities. And I know the foundation is, is working really hard to bring those tribal communities and others into the fold when we think about environmental programs. Talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. That's a great question. And I'm happy to report that we are working more and more with tribal nations, particularly in the Colorado River Basin in recent years. And that's to kind of help build their capacity to be advocates on behalf of the river, but also um, to be part of the decision-making process. Um, we really believe that having tribes and other on the ground community voices in leadership roles is key to finding the solutions that work for the river and work for people and help people and nature thrive together. Just two years ago, the seven states of the Colorado River Basin, as well as the governments of the US and Mexico, entered into uh, what we call the um, Drought Contingency Plan, which is the largest ever water conservation agreement. And um, it's really a blueprint for how to manage water in the face of climate change. And it's really been a huge help in the current shortage in the West and how to manage the reductions in water that different interests have to take. And the agreement just flat out would not have been possible without the tribes of the Colorado River Basin. They brought their water rights and their broader interests in river health and in economic development and in tribal health um, to the table, just like the other states and federal governments. And, um, and that really helped make the whole agreement possible and hold together. We have a huge amount of respect for their work and for our partnership. And we're working to deepen those relationships as we move forward, um, as we try to find solutions that protect the river and keep water in the river um, and keep it, the Colorado River flowing as we see less and less water in the West. You know, the conventional wisdom has always been that climate change is this divisive topic, but I think there are signs that could be changing, maybe because of the scope of the problem. Do you think that the tide is turning here relating to the climate debate? I hope so. Um, I know that, you know, we work on water and we really see water as something that brings people together. Um, it's one of the ways that I think people understand climate change is through their experience with water, whether it's droughts or flooding or megastorms, wildfires. Water really makes climate change concrete for many people. And um, I guess what we found on this topic is uh, we did some polling and we, we found what I think a lot of people might in their hearts suspect, that there's really more consensus on this issue if you dig down a little bit. So we, we uh, asked people about the need to protect water in the face of a changing climate. And we found that um, more than 80% of voters, that's Democrats, independents, and Republicans, agreed that taking action now to protect water resources as a part of our strategy to address climate change is a huge priority. 
So I'm hopeful that that's indicative of a broader movement. Well, we've seen the Biden administration and Congress advance climate change policy through the bipartisan infrastructure network, reconciliation. We expect them to make more commitments um, upcoming at, at COP. Are they doing enough? It, what more can be done here? So I personally am really heartened to see all the conversations happening right now about climate change and particularly bringing water into that conversation. Uh, one of the things I'm particularly excited about is to see natural infrastructure emerge as a public policy priority. This is essentially ways that we can use nature to solve big problems, take river flooding. Uh, we can restore wetlands and floodplains to create more space for the river so that when there's flooding, we protect homes and businesses and communities, and there's a place for the river to go. So um, there's a lot of work ahead of us. But we think this is a really smart place for Americans to start to invest in resilient solutions, and we're really encouraged to see more and more of it. So we, as you said, we're talking solutions here. We want to have these solutions-based discussions, but I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the scope of the problem, the devastating impacts of climate change. We see so much climate anxiety. How do you mm -hmm. stay hopeful and forward-looking at the same time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think working on water is actually really hopeful, um, which might surprise some audiences. Uh, but the truth is, you know, as I said, we think water really brings people together in a way that almost nothing else does. And beyond that, um, there are things that we can do right now to protect water resources in the face of climate change that I think bring us hope for how we can innovate and, and have more solutions going forward. Um, just a couple of examples from our portfolio, like in the Midwest, we're seeing cities partner with farmers to incentivize conservation on farmland that helps improve drinking water downstream while helping farmers reduce erosion. They want to farm, they want to keep farming on their land, right? In the West, we see opportunities to use beaver dams of all things or similar structures like that to hold back water and restore wetlands. This helps keep the river flowing through the summer and at the same time can actually slow down um, wildfires and help firefighters uh, address those and contain those as we um, fight those, that, as we address that increasing battle. So um, we're really aiming our work at these sweet spots where people and nature can thrive together. And I think there's just a lot of hope in that. Well, it's clear as the impacts of climate change worsen, we must come together, as you say, to take action, to find those innovative solutions to protect and preserve our water. Maura McDonald, Director of the Environment Program at the Walton Family Foundation, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll throw it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Arelis Hernandez. My next guest is Dr. Sarah Derringer. She's a water scientist and water program officer at the Pisces Foundation. Welcome to Post Live. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Sarah, I wonder if we could start sort of with a, a broad view, right? That the water crisis in the United States extends far beyond tribal lands, which is the last conversation that, that we had a few minutes ago. More than 2 million Americans don't have running water in their homes. What's the cause of that? You know, this being the richest country in the world in 2021. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And and first, I just want to say what an honor it is to join um, President Nez and Emma Robbins in this conversation um, about access to water. You're absolutely right. It is a huge issue throughout the U.S. And there's so many different factors that, that are at play. The reality is that none of us are immune to water challenges, but that the challenges often manifest in black and brown communities and poor communities throughout our country more than they do in affluent communities. And I think it's it's a long history of underinvestment um, and the need for us to really engage communities in solutions that will will work for them and will um, help make water sustainable into the future. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted a lot of problems that we have in this country. And one of those problems, you know, had to do with, uh, you know, water access, of course, but also looking at ex- extreme heat and, and drought. How has the, you know, climate change and the water crisis, how is that all connected? And what are the challenges that those present in tackling the water crisis, which is what you're trying to do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, as Moira pointed out as well in the previous segment, um, water and climate are are intrinsically linked. And a lot of the ways that we'll feel climate impacts are in our water systems, um, from sort of extreme flooding to um, having you know, drought conditions in the West. You know, the West is in likely the largest, um, biggest drought we've been in in 500 years. And these are challenges that everyone will be facing. Um, And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that a lot of the solutions are also related to climate and water solutions. When we look at a lot of the solutions for water, like conservation and efficiency or like natural infrastructure, there are big opportunities to solve some of these other climate challenges. You mentioned having urban heat as an issue. Um, At the Pisces Foundation, we're really interested, particularly in working in cities and in urban areas and thinking about what are all of those challenges that people are facing um, simultaneously and how do we help address those through water infrastructure, through um, natural infrastructure that can also support our water systems. And so I think there are big opportunities to do that and to sort of multi-solve. Um, but I, I think we do have to really understand those links together between climate and water in order to do that. Well, we have a little bit of news, right? Yesterday, the Biden administration announced new efforts to curtail what are called toxic forever chemicals, which have turned up in water supplies. First of all, can you explain what forever chemicals are for our audience and, and the amount of and the harm that they cause and, and how common they are in everyday items? Yeah, it's a great question. I will say it's not my biggest area of expertise. And so I'm, I know that there are many out there who do a lot of work on forever chemicals or PFAS. So you'll see them in on the news a lot. Um, but essentially what they are are chemicals that um, are often used in sort of manufacturing um, and for, for products um, that once they're in the environment, they don't degrade. Um, and so they end up staying forever. Um, and many of these chemicals can also show up and transport throughout the globe. And so it becomes a global problem, even if it's uh, started as a localized problem. Well, you mentioned that a lot of the solutions for water access are solutions that come hand in hand with climate uh, in general and addressing climate change. What are some of those key solutions, in your opinion, to addressing you know, the scarcity as well as the equity issue with regards to water access? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think The natural infrastructure or green infrastructure is one of the big ones that gets talked about a lot. It's the idea that we rely on nature and put more nature in in um, into our communities and into our urban areas in order to act in in the way that it 
is meant to act. So it filters water, it can slow water, um, all those things. And I, I think about um, organizations like Ironbound Community Corporation in Newark, New Jersey, that is thinking about green infrastructure in urban areas that can be used both for urban green space and workforce development, but also for um, the water services that we need. So cleaning water um, and providing some flood control benefits. And so I think those are some of the typical ones we think about. Um, but the reality is that many of our sustainable water system solutions will also provide some climate benefits. Um, so things like water conservation and efficiency can have a huge um, impact on, on how much energy our water system is using. And so um, I think about my, my former colleagues at the Pacific Institute do a lot of work looking at the water and energy nexus and how water efficiency can really play a role in both um, reducing how much water we need and kind of building our own community resilience, but then also reducing energy consumption. Um, and so for all of those solutions, I think there's a lot of opportunities, but I also think it's important to think about how we put those solutions into place, um, especially when we think about equity, that the reality is that many of these solutions um, are just the, the what we're putting in, but it's really important to think about how we put them in place. Um, who's at the table, who's deciding what solutions we want to really put forward and, and what works most for our communities. Well, how are you working on these issues at the Pisces Foundation? I know this is, a, you're fairly new to the organization, right? Uh, tell us, how, how are you going to work on these things? Yeah, it's a great question. Yes, so I'm, I'm relatively new, but really excited to be jumping into our water program. Um, so our goal is really looking at one water systems. And, and what I mean by that is these integrated water solutions that, that look at both how do we solve water quality issues and water access? How do we think about water efficiency and water reuse all as tools that we can use in this um, water in building water resilience? Um, and and that I think is what inspires me most about this kind of work is that we're thinking about what are all the tools that we have access to and how do we rely on them in a way that can make our communities and our ecosystems really thrive. Um, and I, I think it's a way of thinking about water more holistically than we've traditionally done it. So generally, um, we think about water in these silos of, you know, we're working on flood control or we're working on water quality right now. Um, but one water is about thinking about all of these systems together and how do we solve them all simultaneously. Well, so this program is called Next Generation Colon Water. And so I want to ask you, what inspired your life's work as a, as a water scientist? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I I think it really goes back to when I was in the fifth grade that my science teacher at the time um, asked us if we wanted to go out water sampling and I was the only kid that showed up, but I thought it was the most fun ever um, just to be able to go out and be in nature and understand, you know, this water looks clean or it, it's clear or what's actually in it and kind of being able to dig into that. And I think that's where it really started for me thinking about, you know, what is, water and how interconnected it is with everything that we do. Um, and then when I think about all of these amazing leaders in water, um, I know there was a big discussion about, you know, where are all the leaders in water coming from? And I, I think, again, it's kind of an all hands on deck. And so we have this opportunity to think about, you know, the engineers and how they play a role in water and the policymakers and finance folks. And, um, and so I think that being able to do that interconnection with different people and figure out solutions has really been what has brought me into this space. Well, how do you think, you know, your teacher did a great job in sort of doing this for you, but how do we boost water literacy among the public, uh, particularly when it comes to younger people? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think environmental education is such a big part of this, of making sure that we see those interconnections between the environment and our everyday lives, um, particularly in urban areas. I think this can be a challenge where we're often disconnected from our water bodies. But I think re-bringing in that connection for folks to see um, how water works and how it exists around us. Um, many of us, although obviously not all, but many of us are really lucky to be able to turn on the tap um, and have water come out of it and, and not think about it much more than that. And so I think it's about kind of raising the consciousness of water um, as such an essential part and a human right for how we exist in this world. Well, women have played a pretty big role in the water justice movement. Uh, some of the most prominent climate activists are, are teenagers as well. What role do you see women and young people in influencing policy and making it different when it comes to public awareness? Yeah, great question. I'm really inspired, especially by the, the younger generation that is now really moving with, especially in the climate movement. Um, I think many of the youth movements really see this interconnection among people and the ecosystem and the world um, that, that we haven't necessarily acknowledged um, in the past. And so I think that's been really inspiring. But I also think about how many leaders and especially women leaders and women of color that have been leading in water for so long. Um, so I look at um, Veronica Fox, who is head of um, the US EPA's Office of Water and has really been a pioneer in thinking about these holistic ways of connecting water. Um, and then there's also so many amazing grassroots organizers and people advocating on the ground, like Catherine Flowers in Alabama and Susanna De Anda in California. And I think about how amazing these women are at what tools they have. And so again, going back to this idea that it's all hands on deck in terms of addressing the water crisis and thinking about climate change. And so thinking about what are your skills and what do you contribute, I think is the best way for folks to get involved and realize that they have a role to play. Well, I heard from the last segment that, you know, there's a lot of consensus about water and, and it seems to be fairly obvious to some people why it's important, but what do you see are the major obstacles to stalling progress and achieving universal access to water and sanitation? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll reiterate again that any of the challenges we're facing now are gonna to continue to get worse as the climate changes. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to internalize and realize that anything we do now, we need to think bigger um, because these challenges are only gonna get bigger. And so I think some of the, the obstacles are often around kind of siloing um, of thinking about pieces of water as separate and disparate. Um, but then I think there's also been a lack of funding over many decades um, for water infrastructure and for um, community engagement within water systems. And so those are those are barriers. But I also think there's a lot of opportunities around water. Um, as Moira mentioned as well, it, it's a wildly popular topic among most voters um, to think about water. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to also to look at solutions and figure out our path forward. Well, is there enough hope and opportunity that universal access is possible within our lifetimes? I, I certainly hope so. Um, California passed the human right to water, which um, put in writing that every person has a right to access to clean, safe, drinkable, affordable water. And I think that that's the kind of model we need to take forward is, is by saying everyone, especially in the United States, because this is where we are and we're the richest country in the world, like that we need to have access to water for everyone. Um, and some of those challenges certainly are um, 
areas that don't actually have plumbing yet, and we need to work on that. I think there's questions around access to safe, clean water. Um, so making sure that we're we're thinking about lead lines and how to address those. Um, but I really do think this is something that we can solve. Um, as, as an engineer myself, I, I often struggle with, I think the engineering is, is largely there. And so it's a question of how do we play better with others to make sure that that engineering goes in place and particularly for communities that have been so underinvested in. What is the most impactful thing that an individual watching this can do? I mean, we've all heard since, I, I mean, certainly me since elementary school about you know, turning off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth and that kind of thing. But what are, what are, what is the most impactful thing that people can do? It, it's a great question. I think there's so many things. And again, it's about seeing where you are and what community you're in and what, what you bring to the table. Um, I certainly think conservation and efficiency is one of the big places that we can do a lot as individuals, um, in particular, outdoor water conservation and efficiency. Um, I think we talk a lot about, you know, turning off the tap or taking shorter showers, but the reality is that outdoor water use is, is huge, especially in the West. Um, and so I think that's one of the big areas. But then I also think it's about understanding your water and your water systems and thinking about, you know, how how do these systems all work together and play together um, in a way that can really support communities and community development. Well, I think we're out of time, so we'll leave it right there. Thanks so much, uh, Sarah Derringer. It's just a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.